Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download guest segment here this Wednesday, brought to you by Ally. Ally is a great partner here at the Dale Jr. Download. We're very thankful for them bringing us this guest segment. Waddell Wilson is our guest today. He is a Hall of Fame engine builder in NASCAR. Just built some of the most incredible motors. Um, looking forward to getting him in here. But first, quick word from our sponsors. Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a production of Dirty Mo Media. This season on the Dale Jr. Download. And she was a single mom for that whole 20 weeks in a row. And she had to clean up the piss. And she had to make all the meals while I'm off chasing race cars and chasing a dream. I don't think Hendrick Motorsports has made a profit in 10 years. The leverage is that right now we don't have a charter agreement that guarantees that the teams have to show up. Andy and I had our own channel between the two of us when he was crew chief for your dad. And y'all would talk amongst each other? We'd talk amongst ourselves. Yep. Bulls. Yeah, that's the truth. I was a crew chief on the 24 and built a set of shocks for the three car. Unreal. All right, so um, excited to have Waddell come in here. He's out there in the in the lobby waiting uh but i'm looking forward to getting him in here and asking him some questions this guy is a hall of fame engine builder what you know would be a crew chief i want to know you know exactly you know when i think about waddell i think about motors i think about some of the best engines we've ever seen come through the sport um motors that have accomplished some incredible things i think about the gray ghost and how fast that car was and uh Kel Yarbrough running 200 mile an hour and flipping upside down at Daytona. Uh, but I don't think about crew chief. He was a crew chief for many drivers and won races. But um, how much did he know about shocks and springs and setups? Uh, I want to ask him about that and a lot of other things too. And so we're going to get him in here and get started. want to thank Ally for being able to uh, bring these guest segments to you every single week. Um, Ally has uh, you know, been a great supporter of Dirty Mo Media and the Dale Jr. Download and, and, and the industry as a whole sponsoring uh, Alex Bowman and, and races as well and just being a great partner for NASCAR, just being such a great ally. They do it right. Well, let's get him in here. Waddell Wilson on the Dale Jr. Download. All right, Waddell. Uh, 
thanks for coming today, man. It's good to see you. Well, thanks for inviting. You came over here by yourself. Oh, yes. Where are you from? Where Denver. You? Denver, North Carolina? On the other side of the lake. Yeah. How long have you lived over there? Oh, long time. Several years, yeah. yes. 87 years old. Older than dirt. That is old, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning 50 this year, and I feel like that's a big deal, but good Lord, man. Well, you know, it's hard to believe I've survived and all I've put myself through in my life. Yes. And, and, you know, I look around and all the people I used to work with are gone. Yes. That is exactly what I want to talk about on top of the show here. Um, when I look at your age and, and how well you move around, how sharp your mind is, and think about your the industry you worked in and all the harmful things that you put yourself around and through, right? Uh, all the all the chemicals and 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 things that y'all were around and exposed to that you didn't know at the time, right? Where um, just like drivers, like right, you know, racers having asbestos in the floorboard back in the day, not That's knowing right. the dangers of that. But um, you're in great shape, and your your mind is sharp. Uh, your memory's great. Uh, you're moving pretty good. Well, I've had both knees replaced, both shoulders replaced. You know, warm out all the years I changed tires. I changed, I was always a front tire changer. Yeah. Except one year and I changed, I was Jackman on Lorenzen's car. Right. And so uh, you were in really, really good shape back then in those days. You know, staying, you know, carrying those big heavy jacks around and all that stuff. You, you must have taken really, really good care of yourself. Well, you know, I was very athletic in school. And, uh, you know, I tried to always eat right and didn't get to do much exercise other than changing tires. And, you know, I know some of the places we'd go change so many tires and on a Monday morning, I'd have to throw myself out of bed. I'd be so sore. <laughs> so when you talk about being uh, athletic in school, uh, had you had had you had your you know, your own choice to make, would you have been an athlete? in college and maybe pro sports no i, I wasn't ever really that good you know to look into being that kind of a yeah. player you know in what sports did them. you compete in well i played baseball baseball and football and in college i played basketball what basketball yeah. what did you enjoy the most basketball? Well, yeah, basketball yeah what what position did you play uh guard and you played in college yes yeah what college Nashville Alton Diesel College. Really? Um, were y'all good? Did y'all win games? Oh, uh, we weren't very good. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're from Bakersville, North Carolina. Right. Right? Um, and you grew up uh, and fell in love with racing at a young age. Right. What? How were you exposed? I mean, racing as we know it, it was different back then. Right, um, in you know, in the forties and fifties, they were driving stock, stock, stock cars right off the oh, showroom. Oh yes. Right. So, how do you fall in love with racing um, back in the forties and fifties? Well, you listen to the races on the radio. They had and, it on the radio. And oh yes, and then the next thing is, I always love fast cars. Yeah. So kids at school fixing their cars up. That kind of stuff. Oh yeah, hot rods yeah. and Model Ts or whatever. What were y'all doing? What were y'all messing with? <laughs> well, changing mufflers and things like that. <laughs> carburetors and what did you, did you take that muffler slam off? Oh, we'd put change the muffler and put illegal mufflers on and get it in depth. I'll wait for Tom and give you a ticket for yeah. it. 
<laughs> so, um, what kind of what kind of work did you do on cars when you were young in school? Was were you building motors back then? Were no, you, yeah. um, no, didn't get to nothing like that. I'd, yeah, I'd tear the transmission up in my old old Ford, and then I'd have to get on down under and change all that. Yeah. So you know, I was mechanically inclined because I couldn't afford nobody to pay anyone to do it, so I had to do it myself. Yeah. Did you have any odd jobs? Did you work jobs when you were a kid? Uh, at times, I'd work at a service station on the weekends. What'd you do at a service station? I did pump gas. Yeah, I did, I did that too. Um, one of the last, uh, well, it was, it wasn't a full service station. I think one side had self serve, but um, one of the last stations here on exit thirty six seventy seven. Uh, was an Exxon station owned by a guy named Ramey, and uh, I I worked a summer over there pumping gas, um, and eating at the Waffle House ba- out back. <laughs> um, so you go, what uh, what was the Nashville? You went to Nashville, right? To Nashville the, to the, Diesel College, yeah, to Auto and Diesel. That's a bit of a drive from Bakersville, North Carolina. Oh, I didn't, you know, I went over in state. I know, I but state in the dormitory. How did you? I know, but how did you know about it? What? How did you? Why did they you want to? They were some kind of came through the school. A guy came to the school. Before I graduated, and was telling us about the college. Yeah, and you're like, man, that sounds awesome. I'm going. Yeah. There's other automotive diesel colleges closer. No, not that I'm no, aware of. Not back then. So went to Nashville. Nashville. What was that like? Well, it was good. You know, I enjoyed it. You know, is. You know, learned a lot from it. Yeah. What was it a big country town back then? I mean, it's not the city it is today. In, uh, back when you were going to college there, but was was it a music town back then? Yeah, they had the Grand Ole Opry. I remember some of the boys that went to college there. They parked cars for the the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty cool. Um, so, how long did you spend time in Nashville at the school? Well, I graduated. You know. A couple of years? Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the length of time it yeah. was. But so you lived there. Yes. And oh, yes. What was that like being away from home? Well, you know, that was different, but it was okay. It was very adjustable. Yeah. You end up going down to Florida uh, and got work in Orlando. Am I right? That was the first place to work. Right. What happened? How'd you? What was? Well, it? What were you doing I, down there? I worked there and was this company, you know, that had the stationary engines worked on them, and then the lot, they went out of business, and then then I found out there was a opening in Miami for Central Truck Lines, so I took that job down Working there. on diesel trucks? Yeah. Yeah, I was a diesel mechanic, and then I ended up working for Cummins Diesel. Are you by yourself? Oh, yeah. You got a girlfriend? Nope. No? Not at that time. So, um, did you miss your family? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who's uh, who's at home? Who's in North Carolina at this time? My mother, father, and my brother. You got a brother. Yeah. Is he older, younger? Younger. Younger. Um, and so during the time you're in Southern Florida, you began racing yourself. Right. You're driving. So, are you doing this with your buddies at work? No. Some of the guys that were hung out at the service station, we put an old car together. Okay. And I, you know, it all happened on a Saturday night. You know, we went to the races, and I said, "Well, I could do that." They said, "Okay." So they built me a race car, <laughs> and I didn't win the first time, but I did win later. Yeah. So you drove cars. Oh yeah. Right. Love nobody, that. I was always thought I was better driver than I was a mechanic. Nobody ever talks about you driving a race car. 
right. know, I guess you tell that story some, but when I think about you, I think of you as an engine builder, and I didn't know you had any experience behind the wheel. Um, so you raced at Hylia, Palmetto, and Hollywood all around in that Florida area, same tracks that Red Farmer and Allison Brothers ended right. up uh, making famous. Uh, jalopies, street stocks, uh, sportsman cars. Um, you you had modest success. What in what eventually pulls you out of the driver's seat? Well, I I was able to win some races, believe it or not. Yeah. But uh, what happened? I tore my old race car to pieces, and then I did. I just said, you know, I give up on it. Do you remember the crash? Oh, yes. What happened? Well, it had an inverted start, and this guy and I was on the front row pole, so we they inverted, put us in the back, and we was working our way up through the field, and this one guy going down the back stretch, we passed him, and he didn't like that idea, so he pushed me into the wall and turned me up on my side. Dang. What kind of car was it? It was a 36 Ford Coupe. Yeah. And so damaged the car beyond repair. Well, it totaled it pretty totaled much. It, yeah. yeah, it was junk. So you I, were out of money. Uh, yeah, that that took your money. <laughs> <laughs> Racing was a tough business back then, financially. Oh yes. Um. So how? So you moved back to North Carolina eventually. Right. Um. So you crashed the car. Uh. You're not gonna fix it. You're frustrated about that. You're working at Cummings. Right, Cummings Diesel. Why do you decide to move home? I just decided to come back home, you know. Was it you missing your family? Well, Were there some work opportunities there? Sure. I just decided to go back home, you know. And what did the boys in Florida tell you? They they tell you not to leave? Uh, well, I've seen them after that. They'd come to some of the racetracks where I was finally, you know, working yeah. on the race cars. Y'all stayed in touch? Yeah, some of Yeah. So you end up coming back to North Carolina. You worked at a Ford dealership. Right. You lost your job. Well, what happened, they changed the people that own the place. You know, they sold out to these people. Well, they didn't like me, and I didn't like them. Why? I, I don't know. It was an odd situation. Boy, I just grabbed up my tools. Were and you the lead engine guy? Were you the? No, I was just a line mechanic. You are a line mechanic. Yeah. So in the dealership, when I worked in the service department, you had an engine guy. You had, a, you had the front-end alignment guy. You had the quick lube guy. That was me. Uh, you had another guy, you had a couple general mechanics that could do just about anything, fix a door, you know, fix a uh, door handle or, or a broke mirror or whatever. Um, back in those days, when you were working in the dealership, they did, did they have specialty No, mechanics? they just give you a job and you <laughs> figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> That's about that, it. That's awesome. And the cars were so much easier to work on back then. I bet it was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. You know, it was fairly easy to fix them, you know. Do you remember if you worked on commission or not? Was yeah, it, that's I did. You did. I done good at that. Was it, com- was it competitive with the other line mechanics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dang. Um, I'm, I'm, we weren't that competitive because everybody had a everybody knew that, you know, the engine guy's going to get the engine job. The alignment guy's going to get the alignment job. So we didn't all work against each other or work. We weren't trying to work, uh, get work from each other. Um, but I imagine back in the day, man, it was pretty competitive. Uh, so how did you end up getting out of the – out of the? You know, so you got fired out of the dealership. Well, I really didn't get fired, to be honest with you. And what happened, these new guys come in, yeah. they didn't like me. They just and said I they weren't like keeping them. you. And I said, I'm out of here. Oh, you left. I was wanting to get out anyway. So anyway, I come to Charlotte. Wait, wait, wait. How far is Bakersfield from Charlotte? 
I don't know, 100 or so miles, something, not sure. Why did you come to Charlotte? Well, I knew that that'd be a good place to look for work. Why? And Charlotte's biz, uh, yeah, big city? Yeah, a lot going on. A lot going you on. Know, and I knew a couple of people there in Charlotte that I could stay with while I found me a job. Were you Were you thinking racing? No, had no clue of that one. Right. What happened the first couple of days, I'm looking for diesel work because I worked at Cummins Diesel in Miami, and I like building diesel engines. Yeah. So anyway, for two days, I couldn't find nothing. So anyway, a friend of mine on the Tuesday night, he said, why don't you go ask Holman Moody? I think, yeah, that's a joke. So yeah. I'm going to Holman Moody, and one of them, if hiring anybody, the general manager met me at the door, and he asked me, if he could help me, and I told him I was looking for employment. He said, "Well, we're not hiring nobody. We don't need no help." Very sarcastic. Yeah. So anyway, sounds about <laughs> like somebody in racing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When they, but when anyway, you. so I'm going out the door, not disappointed because that's the answer I figured I get, and run into John Holman. He said, "Can I help you?" Did you know who he was when you saw him? Uh, not really. Yeah. I had a vague idea that that was John Holman. Yeah. But anyway, he said, "Well, step in my office." So Just like that. Yeah, and so I walked in the office. He goes behind, sits down at his desk, and he's opening mail, and I'm telling him what I've done in racing, built minions and drove the car and done all this. And finally, I didn't think he was paying any attention to what I said. So finally I said, well, I graduated from Nashville Auton Diesel College. He looked up at me the first time, and he said, be here at 8 o'clock in the morning. What was it about the college experience that I don't mattered? know, just that, that triggered him. Let me ask you a question. All of your, uh, everything you learned about working on diesel motors, was any of that, uh, any of that helpful in your future as a successful engine builder in motorsport? No. Right. So, where did you learn? Where do you credit learning the craft of building an, a, a V eight, you know, small block? Well, I really never had nobody teaching me or showing me a thing. I just You're had old. a feel for it, Yourself. really. Yeah. So you go work at Home <laughs> Moody um, in 1963? Three, yeah. Build motors right away? Well, they stuck me in Well, let me tell you the rest of that story. Yeah. There's a guy named Hardrock come to the Hall of Fame all several years back, and he came to me and said, I need to tell the rest of your story. He said, when you come to work there, and they put you in the engine room. They put you in the room to room to get rid of you. And I know when I went in there, put, I put said, them they, where? they put they, you in the engine room yeah, to get they, rid of you. Yeah, just because they the best one the people from Virginia, not no North Carolina people in that <laughs> engine room. Really? That's what I found out later. And they said they give you the hardest job they could give you, and figure you gonna goof up, and they gonna get you out the door. Yeah. And Lee Terry was over the engine room, and he, they had not go to lunch or break, whatever, they'd check it out. And he finally, Lee said, you know, he must be something special. There ain't a thing we can find wrong that he's doing. We might as well just leave him alone. <laughs> so, you know, after that, it, you know, first thing, Noel Lorenzo knew about it, and he he wanted my engines, and so went from there. right out of the gate, your first, what what was your first true responsibility at Holman Moody? Well, this build, build a engines. complete engine. Yeah, they hire you, and like here, here's the mo, here's the motor. Build it, all right. And so, do you remember? Can you remember the very first engine you built? Where it went? No. Nope. Who drove it? Where's your motor going? Into what car? Well, you know, we just, just line them up, and they come and pick them up. 
Okay. Yeah, we didn't so re- y'all, how many people were building motors? Was it there was six of us, six and in 65, we built 500 and some engines. And you would have team owners and drivers come over, you know, and pick their motor up. It'd be assigned to someone. Yeah. Right. right? And so all these, so it was like an, it was like an assembly, like a engine, true engine shop. But, uh, but each person built their own engine. You didn't part do parts of right. it. And you build a motor, and somebody came and got it, took it to the racetrack, and raced it, and then they brought it back, and you'd be you'd rebuild yeah. it. That was it. That's about it. You go to the racetrack. Oh yeah. Did you go and work on the car where your motor was? Oh yes. You were responsible for tuning it. I was always, you know, the start with on the Renzo's car. I was jack man, yeah. and okay. then after that, I was a tire front tire changer. Okay, and that, and so you worked for Holman Moody building motors. You also pitted cars and their cars. Um, and so you were seven days a week working on a Holman Moody race car. And a normal day back then was 8 in the morning to 10 at night. Yeah, because uh, I'm trying to understand, was Hol- the Holman Moody organization to me is just co- a little confusing because – they had a lot of different cars. They owned some cars, and then other people dr- would buy cars from them and go race them. Um, you say they had six engine builders, uh, building motors every week. Multiple, you know, you had your Holman Moody had their own in-house cars running their motors. Oh, yeah. Plus, they had other motors and other cars out right. in the field. All the Ford cars, <laughs> engines, and cars come out of Holman Moody. So back. Back in those days, for people listening, um, back in those days, Holman Moody was the was basically Ford's manufacturing arm. And, right. right. So if you were a Ford and you needed Ford factory support, that's where you got it from Holman Moody. Oh know? yes. Yeah. In the in the NASCAR stock car industry, it was really a unique situation because then, because as you know, uh, factory support's always been a part of racing, but. Holman Moody and that type of organization doesn't truly exist today. Now it's no. team owners and, and, and it's a little different. So that's something that I, 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 it wasn't around when I was younger. It's interesting to hear you describe it and, and what it must've been like to work there. Um, so Holman Moody is massively respected in, in our world. Oh, they were the company back then. Holman Moody was well known for parts and yeah. engines, and you know, and it was Ford back, factory backed all the way. Yes, I want. I'm, I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I want to know, like, why does Holman Moody come to an end? Well, that's a good question. You know, the last time we run a race car out there was in in uh, with Bobby Allison in '71. Yep. And that was a Coke car, the number 12. Yes. It was so successful. Yep. And then the year be- right before that, we run David Pierce for the championship in 68 69, won the championship two yep. years in a row. And then then at the end of, you know, Bobby's run there in 71, you know, they shut it down. There was no more team, no more race car running out of Holman Moody. And then Holman, you know, Said you don't just build engines. So anyway, Glenn Wood come to me to so, build his engines. So did you did you see this coming? Was this a, like a you would walk <laughs> into work one day and they're like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. Was this fast? Was it was it long time coming? 
Well, it was a shock because, you know, we were very successful with Bobby Allison yeah. winning all over the races we won. And, you know, this end of the year, he and Moody got into it. They had a little so, disagreement. And he, Holman fired Moody. And <laughs> but they are not, are they not a partnership? Oh, yes, definitely. But they yeah. didn't, they didn't get along from day one, sad to say. And yeah. Well, all right. That makes more sense then. Um, they're, it, they're celebrated even today after all these years. And I just, you know, and I'd heard that there was a disagreement, but it's just so interesting to, to look back and have somebody that was right there in the middle of it um, imagine, like, how maybe that possibly could have been, you know, continued on. I, I do want to step back. You worked on Fireball Robert's car, all right? One time. One time. One year, yeah. One year, right? What was Fireball Robert's like? He was an amazing guy. The The media loved him. Yes. And I'd always come to him to get a story out of him. And at the end, they didn't have no place to hide when they come to the racetrack. So they hung Fireball would get up on the workbench and sit there and watch us work on his race car. Yeah. And we'd been on their own pit wall. And I remember back then, you know, they didn't have nothing special when they'd get in that race car. And he'd get in that with dungarees on them, a pair of penny loafers, a T-shirt, a three-quarter helmet, and his sunglasses, and that was it. Yeah. That's how he climbed that race car. So um, the year that he gets hurt and killed uh, at at Charlotte. Charlotte. You were on Fred's car. Fred Lorenzo, right. Um, but I do want to ask you, um, you know, that's uh, Fireball's driving a Holman Moody car, and uh, although you're not working on that car that particular race, uh, that had to have been pretty tragic, right, to see all that play out. Yeah, at the end of 63, yeah, that's whenever home, or Lorenzo come and Moody and wanted me to be on Lorenzo's car. Yeah. But then being at the racetrack that day whenever Fireball got on fire on the backstretch, that was the most horrible scene I've ever seen till this day. Really? That was horrible. And, you know, he's one guy that I really had a lot of respect for. He was a great guy to work for, and he, he was good for the public relations, whatever it was he could do. Yeah. He was an amazing man. Yeah, that was a very tragic day, and um, and you know Ned Jarrett's told the story many times, and um, I just have to wonder what that must have been like to be in the Holman Moody camp, uh, going through that and and having uh, Fireball so severely injured, and eventually he would he would uh, pass away due to those burns. But um, you know that uh, losing Fireball was was the or was the company. Uh, did that? Did the company feel that with when when he was when he was burned and when that accident happened? Did that that you know when you come to work the next day, uh, the next week, uh, was that conversation dominating the 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 engine room? Uh, you know what what was the emotions like for everybody at home and Moody? Well, it was a sad time. There's no doubt about it because I still remember like it was yesterday, and it was a horrible thing. And they brought the car and put it in the back of the shop, you know, and really? covered it up. Yeah. And it sat there for a while. But I mean, that was that was just a heartbreak to everybody. Yeah. And then to have then to see it happen on the backstretch at Charlotte, that's that was unbelievable how yeah. bad it was. Yeah. Well, um, you. You know, you got to win races with Fireball. Um, you end up going and working on Fred's car for a year. Um, talk about um, you went to 
you went to Fred with a USAC to USAC stock car racing uh, in Indianapolis Raceway Park, the road course right. in '64. What is um, is USAC stock car and NASCAR competitive in this area? Well, that was very, very unusual. And the first time that I remember we done something like yeah. that. You know, we always run down here, and and I remember the start of the season, Richard Petty has won it one Daytona, and then the next six races or seven, we won those runs, and then went to that road course up there in Indy, and, and we ended up winning that race. I'll never forget. Yeah. And he come picked us up at the end of one pit road and took us down pit road. And I'll never forget. That was the scariest I was in my life. Just it wasn't nothing to hold on to on that race car. And yeah. He was a good, going very fast. fast. So riding on the race car after a win, um, you know, there's so many images of teams climbing all over those old you know, Oldsmobile 442s and, and Monte Carlos in the late 70s and riding to Victor right. Lane. That, you never, so you say in in my notes here that you almost fell off the car that day. Did you ever get back on a race car? That was enough. That was enough. That's, that's put enough fear in me. So tonight. when Buddy Baker wins the 1980 Daytona 500 and he rides everybody to Victor Lane, you didn't get on the car that oh. year? <laughs> I'd had a so hard time. Did. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> it was Looked like NASCAR a will find you th- these days. You climb on a car. I thought that was the coolest thing ever to watch everybody ride the car. <laughs> Richard Petty in '79. Everybody riding the car into Victory Lane. Oh yeah, those are cool. How hot were the? You, you see them old guys, the sponsors, and like uh, who was the guy, the Gatorade guy, or no, who was the STP guy, Granatelli? You see these guys in these like slacks, hop on these hot ass race cars at the end of the race, and I'm like. How in the hell is that not burning their ass when they're riding on the hood of that <laughs> son of a gun on the way to Victory Lake? Because you know it's hotter than hell, the roof or the hood of that car. Um, I wish I'd have known what it was like to ride on one of them old cars in the 70s to Victory Lane. Was, but they stopped doing that. Yeah, that, was, could... that was a scary moment. <laughs> when Holman Moody shuts down, did every, I mean, everybody that worked there, they, they didn't sh- They just stopped taking cars to the racetrack they can yeah they just they continue building motors though right and they you know they let bobby go and moody home and fired moody and that was the end of that but they kept building motors well that's whenever glenn wood and leonard come to me and i know if i'd build engine for them so in 72 you know i built engine for the wood brothers and then i remember that's forward mercury it was mercury and it had the 429 balls 429 engines yeah. and i hated that engine. why that's just what they wanted to run why'd you, know, you hate it it took a half a day to just stretch the rod bolts in the thing what is stretching a rod bolt <laughs> that's to get the right length and right to work together how do you stretch a rod bolt well you can stretch it but you you know there's a trick to it tell me well you put a little oil on it to start with make sure that you don't have friction to it yeah and then you torque it down and you got a, a mic that you check the start with and then you stretch it and then you stretch put the mic back on again and make sure you've got the right stretch in it wow. and the right foot pounds of torque in it yeah and so it takes a day half a day half a day i hated that engine God. i still do so if but you I, didn't stretch the if you didn't stretch it well it's a good there's a good it's, you know reason for a loss you lose your engine you yeah. know the bolts would break whatever you you what you had to go by whatever the you know, NASCAR, not NASCAR, Ford would give you the specs and yeah. how they want it done, and that's what you build it to. Man. Um, so you hated working on that motor because it took so long to work on it. 
Oh, they are very successful. I mean, A.J. Dobert started with, they won in California and Ontario, and then they come to Daytona, won the Daytona Were 500. you in Daytona for the 500 when A.J. won driving the Wood Brothers nope. car? No. You built the motor? I know, but he did, I didn't. I wasn't on the pit crew or anything, so, so I you just wouldn't stop building engines. He was just sitting at home or working on the motors at home. <laughs> yep. Dang, you'd think he'd go down there and be in Daytona for the 500. It just seems <laughs> crazy. Speed weeks. No, I just, yeah. you know, built that. Who's tuning on your motor at the racetrack? Leonard, I guess. Leonard. Glenn, I don't know. Yeah. Did you like working with Leonard? Because me and Leonard are pretty close and i always just oh, thought yeah, the world I, of him i thought the world leonard yeah. we we and you know we swapped carburetors once in a while he'd come get one for me <laughs> since i forgot to and you know he was a great guy yeah very good at what he was doing and and glenn you know he's a great manager of the whole thing yes. you know, he owned it but uh i enjoyed working with those guys and, and um, pearson drove it the latter part of the season that yeah year. you like you kind of they they came to you did they not come to you and ask you about Pearson driving that car? Well, the funny thing about it, AJ was going to go to Indy then. He had to get out of that car. And Glenn come and asked me, who would you put in that race car? And I used one guy, David Pearson, put him in that race car and put him and Leonard together. And I said, you have a winning combination. Cause he is, he can win races because I've yeah. done worked with him two years from, in 68 and 69. We won the championship two years in a row. And we won a hundred run a hundred races that year. Yeah. It was two years, man. Um, and that would that would develop an incredible uh, dynasty with the Wood Brothers and David Pearson. Uh, in seventy three, this is interesting to me. You end up going to LG Dewitt uh, to work on Benny Parsons' cars, right? Um, and now they win a championship. Yeah, in that 73. first year they won the championship. Yeah, yeah. They fa- finished on the didn't win a race. Finished on the lead lap one. Well, time. they won one right. Yeah, they won, won Bristol. Did they? Yeah. So he wins one race, and that was his only lead lap finish. <laughs> I think. I remember Victor Lane because I was up there on Bobby's car. Yeah. And they and they wanted to know why I didn't come over. Benny did. Why I didn't come over to Victor Lane with him? I said, you know, I didn't feel in place to do that. Why? But anyway, I don't know. I just had my job to do there, and I stayed there with it. Huh. So, um, you, what was it like working uh, LG DeWitt? Now, I don't want to discredit this team, but this is a this is they're a good team. They ran well, um, very reliable. That's how Benny wins the championship. That's how uh, Benny was ever, uh, uh, you know, able to find himself going to Victory Lane was mainly like you know outlasting people. Right? right, just the car never broke. Um, rarely did they have any mechanical failures. The uh, but he wasn't going to go out there and beat the Wood Brothers or outrun no. Richard Petty. You're you're coming off of two championships with Pearson, winning ten some races with Bobby Allison, and you're going to go. What drew you over to the '72 car with Benny? Well, they talked to me coming there with them, and I said, you know, but it was a young. Uh, uh, the team had not, you know, really accomplished anything. Uh, were you curious about what they could become or how much you could help? Well, I felt that, you know, I could help just so much, naturally. Yeah. You know, I could be, I could take care of engines for you. And that's where I go to the racetrack and tune the engine. Yeah. I can change tires if you need a tire changer yep. or a jack man. And the crew chief on that car 
Who was the crew chief eventually, though? Um, Travis Carter. Travis Carter was Travis Carter the was Travis Carter the crew chief in seventy three? Yeah, he was. As far as my best I remember, he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was with it again whenever we, you know, won the Daytona five hundred. He was with it. Yeah, that's nineteen seventy five. <coughs> I wanted right. to talk about that. Great story that you you often share about an engine. Um, so Benny Parsons comes up to you at Riverside in California with a set of heads from some drag racer and wants you to put them in a motor. Is that <laughs> am I am I getting, well, when getting he it started? Came to me when he came to me and showed me them and I said, That's drag race pistons. It was pistons what it was. Oh sorry. What did I say? And what did I say? Heads, I think is what oh, you said. Okay. But anyway it was a set of pistons. Yeah. And uh, this guy he said he swears it take him win Daytona with it. I said, that's quarter-mile pistons. They don't run 500 miles. Yeah. He said, yeah, we got to build it. I said, okay. <laughs> and money was short. Dale yeah. G. and Benny went to Daytona to get an advance on the season and money. So anyway, we get to the shop. I build the engine. And I'm thinking, well, where's parts? You know, I get parts to build another. We don't have no money to buy books. So you build the motor with the with the pistons Benny wants? Right. He gave you know. He, and now you're going to build a spare. <laughs> And anyway, go build a spare. Well, the year before that's when we had all those failures of engines because they downsized and the aftermarket didn't hadn't caught up with rods and cranks and okay. pistons and everything else. So anyway, I go through all the junk and find enough parts to put an engine together with just to be an engine. And it's got normal pistons. Yeah. Spare. Oh, well, yeah, it's got used stuff in it. Yeah. You know, the, I did have some new bearings and rings go right. in it, and that was it. But it don't have drag race pistons in it. No, yeah. <laughs> no it okay. has old pistons yeah. that have been run. Gotcha. <clears throat> so anyway, I put that engine together, and we go to Daytona. And Benny said, well, we'll leave this engine in, the new one, and run a couple laps, and then we'll take it out and run the 500. Okay. Two laps later, that thing blowed up. The one with the drag race pistons? Yeah. I told him it was a quarter-mile piston, and he wouldn't believe it me. It blew up. Anyway, so we got this old slave engine. I wouldn't give you $200 for the thing. Yeah. Put it in the car. We we practiced. We qualified. We run the 25 or whatever. I I think we had to fall out of it because we have started 30-something in the race, 31st, 32nd in the race. So it comes down halfway through the race, and he's in the top five running with them. Nice. How's that engine hanging together? Yeah. And, but anyway <laughs> – Come down there next to the end, and, and the Wood Brothers is leading the race with, uh, anyway, yeah, with David Pearson. And uh, something happened. He ran in on a slow car and spun out. Down the back straight. So, yeah, so we, we ended up in leading the race. And I'm thinking, what size is that engine? Because to start with, they went down to 364, and then they went to 358. And I had no clue what I put together. Right. So anyway, we come back. And he he wins the race, and I'll never forget. L.G. DeWitt was so excited about that he couldn't even enjoy it. It was way beyond his wildest imagination. And Benny, I thought he's gonna squeeze me inside out of him because he was it was way beyond him thinking about going down and winning it. And then all I could think of before the race over, what size is that engine? Could it, it could have the wrong crank in it? So anyway. We go through victory lane, and then they go to tear down, and then they page me. I don't want to go to tear down. <laughs> but anyway, I said, okay, I'll go. And I tore it down, and it was okay, but thank goodness. My I was goodness. scared to death of that. When, when was your last season with DeWitt? 
Was that? Was that it? was pretty much after that. You know, it was. It was a two. It was a two hundred mile round trip right. to the shop. Right. You did that for multiple years. Goodness. Yeah, I got tired of doing that, and and uh, Roger Penske wanted me to come to work for him. Yeah. And he met me at Charlotte Motor Speedway or the airport, and we made it worked a deal out, and I'd go to work for him. What were you going to do for him? Build engines. For his IndyCar stuff? No, or no, no. NASCAR? Because he, he had a team with Bobby oh, Allison, right? Right. Um, but LD, uh, D. Witt found out about this. Well, I went to the shop and told him about it. He sits on a set of pistons. Two hours later, had me convinced that I couldn't leave in the middle of the season, which wasn't the right thing to do, which I knew that. Yeah. And he convinced me to stay with him. And to the end of the year, yep. and I did. I stayed with him. I had to call Roger though and tell him I wasn't going to able to go to work for him. <laughs> well, so you never went to work for Roger? Pinsky, no, ever. We're still friends today. I know yeah. when I got inducted in the Hall of Fame, he was the first one to congratulate me. Really? The wait is almost over. North Carolina FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to your state on March the 11th. You'll finally be able to bet on all your favorite teams and all your favorite sports. With FanDuel, there's tons of ways for you to get in on the action. You can bet on everything from the money line to over-unders to which team will win this year's Tobacco Road rivalry. All on the app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, with live betting, you can even pick which players will put up the next bucket and the one after that as well. So see for yourself why FanDuel is America's number one sports book. Just go to FanDuel.com slash Dale so you can be the first to know when FanDuel goes live in North Carolina. That's FanDuel.com slash Dale. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 21 plus and present in North Carolina. Gambling problem? Call 877-718-5543 or visit morethanagame.nc.gov. Availability subject to regulatory approval. If you collect diecasts like I do, the beginning of the new NASCAR season, that's when you start thinking about what cars you want to add to your Lionel Racing diecast collection. Many of the sponsor changes and new paint schemes that have been unveiled so far are sure to make some great-looking diecasts. I'm actually partial to the Chevrolet, of course, but Ford and Toyota, they'll have all new bodies on the track for the Cup Series this year. All these changes mean our friends at Lionel Racing the official diecast of NASCAR, they've been hard at work with the race teams to get those 2024 paint schemes into production. And each week, we're putting up the latest diecast for pre-order at LionelRacing.com. To kick off the 2024 NASCAR season, Lionel Racing has an exciting offer for race fans and diecast collectors. Order any diecast now at LionelRacing.com and you get free domestic shipping when you use this promo code, DOWNLOAD24. That's free shipping with the promo code DOWNLOAD24 at LionelRacing.com. 1978, you go work for Harry Rainier. Right. Uh, this is a – I love this car, uh, and this car has an incredible history in our sport. Um, you uh, you were hired to build engines for, um, for the Rainier team. They were a new young team. Lenny Pond's the driver. Right. All right, and Lenny is a dang trip. So I did this. Uh, I did a little studying on Lenny. Um, about what kind of driver he was, and the guy. I don't know, Lenny to me, and and you know you can have whatever opinion you want, but Lenny to me could not get out of his own way 
in, out of the car. Like he he he's a good racer, um, but created a lot of unnecessary problems for himself when try in how he dealt with people, right? How he managed situations, right? Um, and so, um. He, but he had a very loyal fan base from Virginia. He did. You know, that really believed in his ability. Um, what was working with Lenny like? He's, he's a fascinating character from, from the early or the late 70s, early 80s. Well, I, I never had no problem with Lenny. You know, he, he and I got along fine. I remember the, being at Talladega with him. And I told Harry Renier, I said, he's, he's not running the lines he needs to run with that race car, you know. And he said, well, you tell him. I said, well, I never told a driver how to drive a race car in my life. And he said, well, you need to tell him. So I'd tell him. I said, well, draft this and pull in behind that one. And he ends up winning the race, <laughs> which is hard to believe. But, it, but that that was a fast race car. He yeah. was very capable of winning the race to start with. So we won the race with him. Man. Um, but he gets he gets removed from the car, and they bring Buddy Baker in in 1979. Right. Um, what did you know about Buddy? I mean, Buddy had been around forever, but Baker's father had been around forever, so you knew Buddy, but had you worked for Buddy or with Buddy? No, and that's the first time I'd ever had any dealings with Buddy at all. I just remember he he loved Daytona and Talladega, and so did I. Yeah. He would mash the gas. <laughs> he that's would do sure. that. Yeah. He was unreal at those two racetracks. Unreal. Yeah. So um, y'all end up uh, – working together and you're building the motors but eventually Rainier wants to make you the crew chief yeah i did really i never wanted wasn't interested in being a crew chief but he come to me and he said you're gonna, gonna be the engine builder you're gonna be the crew chief general manager and you got the whole nine yards why didn't you want to be the crew chief well the biggest reason i didn't have to argue with myself how much tape to put on the front of it you know that the mechanics would always want to put too much on there and, and ruin the engine and run it hot and then the two lower gears, they'd want to put gears in it that didn't work. Yeah. So, you know, I said, well, I won't have to argue with myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about shocks and springs? I, I asked you that because I've always thought of you as one of the most prolific engine builders in the industry. You're in the Hall of Fame because of all of the success that you had building engines. And not a lot of people, myself included, connect you to crew chiefing solely crew chiefing um you got you know as a crew chief you're responsible for everything right especially back in those days you were the guy that was going to choose the springs the shocks the sway bar the track bar all those things the wedge your nose weight how did you develop the ability to to put only not only put an amazing engine in that car but also get that thing to handle in the corner <coughs> well it, it come easy but let me explain when I worked at home with Moody and be on the race car, you know, with the guys, they just two of them, and me, and I'd be the third one because I took care of the engine. But I changed springs and sway bars and, and didn't pull strings down in cars just like the rest of them did. You know, there's only so much you can do to an engine, so there's all that other work to do. Yeah. And I was well aware of everything that was going on. I didn't, you know, setting up setting up a race car, that wasn't no problem for me to set it up. Yeah. So that – that that i that that knowledge started from back in the 60s you know yeah. and you you just had developed because to your point you know when you're going to the racetrack and 
working on pit crew and so forth, and you're at the racetrack pitting, you know, getting the car through practice and to get, getting it through the week. I mean, practice in the late 70s started on Tuesday. In a lot oh, of these yeah, races, it did. You'd be they'd open they'd open the track up. The track would be green from eight to five. Run as long, <laughs> long as you want. <laughs> right. That makes I mean that that blows people's minds today to think that you know you'd be over at Sharmer Speedway for the you know for the for the Sunday race practicing all day on Wednesday and Thursday, and just the track could you know be open running laps as many as you wanted to. Um, so you developed a, a mind for setting the car up, making the car handle. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you didn't want to be the crew chief, but you eventually are nabbed to do that with with Harry Rainier and the and uh, the Grey Ghost in 1979. Uh, did you find that your concerns about taking that role as the crew chief, to you know, did you find that to be more comfortable than you thought? No, whenever Harry came to me and he said, you're going to have it all, and I thought for me minute. I don't want, and then that's like I said to me go. Yeah. I said, well, I don't have to argue myself. Yeah, I'll do it. So yeah. you know, at the end of the '79 season, there was only three of us in the race shop. It was what happened, everybody? Well, this one went that way, and yeah. the other one went that way, and then I, I let two or three of them go because they were painting in those cars in in the shop that those uh, the STP cars and all that paint all over everything, and I finally I had enough of that what they was doing there with the company products and everything yeah. so i released them i got you so anyway they was three of us when the season started for the 80 getting ready for the daytona 500 yeah and i remember taking that race car and i said well i don't have no body man i got a machinist that's the world's best james luter and keith russell he's a, my helper and uh so I built the engine. I remember I put it together three different times. I didn't like it. I'd take it apart. And I remember going through the holidays and thinking, I'm the only one that's working, but I know what I'm up against when I get why to Daytona. T- All right. So why did you take them? Why would you ever take a motor apart? That you, what would, what, did, what would I didn't see like something it? I didn't like. I'd like, taste the same. It didn't like go what? back again. What, the rings didn't have the wrong rings. Or, yeah. You know, it's just, I can't remember exactly talk what it was. Talk about a motor. It was, it will help me understand. Like sometimes I heard, I've heard you talk about a motor not sealing. That's you know, right. What is that? Well, that's whenever you compression is sealed and not blowing by the rings. Yeah, that's from sealing, getting and it so, sealed. And there was a combination there of, you know, of dike. We had what we call then dike rings, which I like using. If you could get to seal with them, you certainly didn't pick up some horsepower. Really? So there's a lot of little things you had to work on, but you had to get it to where it worked to to, to make horsepower you're looking for. Yeah. And y'all would basically take the head, the stock head, and completely rebuild it, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Golly. I mean, the the stuff that y'all were able to do um, to, manu- to, 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 you know, within the rule book to manipulate those those heads to create the compression and head of everything timing like you wanted it is fascinating as hell. You don't have that creativity anymore. Well, the big thing, you know, another thing, you talk about heads over there and take manifold. And yeah. then there was the carburetor. Which was a major deal. A lot of people didn't like messing with carburetors, but I love messing with carburetors. Yeah. And they was a lot like Canadian. And with Bobby Austin winning them raises in, what was here, 70, 89, or what? But anyway, yeah. with Bobby Austin in that Coke car. Oh. You know, he was just. In 71. Yeah. 72. So thank you. There you go. That, that was, so much of that was in the carburetor. I'd heard that story. So they, you know, they, they put a plate on the cars, a restricted plate. And they didn't make a rule on the minimum size of the carburetor, um, and and those the 
you basically learned to be able to channel um, that carburetor to, 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 to flow better for that spacer plate because without it basically it's run it's all that air and fuel is smashing into that carburetor spacer plate reversion and turning around right oh yeah and so you figured out a way on a flow bench to get that carburetor work as well as if that plate wasn't even there i found that the flow the flow angle was six to eight degrees yeah and i worked on that and and put those sleeves in there seeing the sleeve was max was an inch and eleven sixteenths yeah and then, you know, it didn't say no minimum. Right. So it was in the rules. You can make it as small as you, you want. You can make it. Ball no, Na- NASCAR never thought anybody would make it smaller because that would be detrimental to power and speed. That's why right? I can't understand. Why didn't other people come up with that? So when, I, so when you, who see, who, you know, when anybody's, no, when NASCAR looks at your carburetor, do they do they go, hey, yeah, okay. Well, somebody, we won both Charlotte races that year, I yeah. remember, and I mean, I remember all the races. But anyway, we learned Charlotte. We come from two laps down, one in Charlotte mm-hmm. with Bobby. And then we go to Rockingham. And that morning, the Gazaways was in charge, Bill and Joe. Mm-hmm. And they come to me and took my carburetor. I said, wait a minute. Why are you taking my carburetor? Well, we're just taking it. Somebody had told them that's where, that's where that it was. I was making horsepower. Yeah. So anyway, they uh, I called John Holman. And... I told him that they took my carburetor. He said, what else? Is that carburetor legal? And another thing, John Holman, the 10 years I worked for him, he put that old big finger in my chest, and he said, if you ever get caught cheating, I'll yeah. fire you. You're good enough to run when races without cheating. And yeah. I didn't cheat because sure. I didn't want to look over my shoulder. Yeah. And then anyway, he they took the carburetor, and he said, well, if Holman did, said, if you don't – if they won't give it back to you, bring that thing to the house. So load the car up. Yeah. You're so at Rockingham I, to race. I go over and they have to get the car back. No. So we're pulling it up on the back of the hall. Where are you going home? He said, well, let's talk about it. The talking's done. Give him a carburetor. We're going to the house. And they came in the carburetor back, and I'll never forget we didn't win that race. And that hurts today. Did <laughs> you load up and go home? No, we didn't go home because they gave me the carburetor back. I'll say, okay, so yep. you carburetor's back, car's back on the ground, car's in the garage, you go out, and you didn't win the race. Nope. <laughs> that, that, Something happened. Yeah, we ended up with the wrong left rear spring in it. I got you. Okay. Never must, forget that. Damn. And that bothers you. <laughs> oh, Today, yeah, hey, that was one we gave away. <laughs> oh, my God. All these years later. Um, so let's talk about the 1980. Daytona 500, the Grey Ghost. This is my favorite paint scheme of all time. I've actually ran the Grey Ghost uh, in some throwback races a few times now. I've ran it as many times as they let me. And so uh, I just believe it's a beautiful combination, color combination, good-looking race car. And, of course, it was maybe the fastest car I've ever I've ever uh, heard about on a racetrack. Dominated. You had to put day glow. Duct the front tape on the front or yeah. decal on the front just because it would run up on the rest of the competition so fast they couldn't see it coming because yeah, it blended into afraid the. Afraid it'll run over them. Yeah. Um, so, what was unique about that car? What was what made the Grey Ghost so much better than everyone else out there? I want to say in 1980, the Daytona 500, eight of the top 10 starters had Oldsmobiles. Right. Everybody had the same parts and pieces. 
What were you doing to make your car so fast? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things I done. I still to this day can't understand why they couldn't pick up on it just like that carburetor. Yeah. I mean, that was a simple fix for that carburetor. Yep. <clears throat> but anyway, we're at the shop, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do to get that car? You know, we got to go to Daytona. we got to be the best. And I took it i didn't have no body man so i took it to the guy that used to work at home with movie and t- and i put a long template on it now that's another trick i had that nobody picked up on that long template was where the cow pressure was at yep and i told him i said that long template has got to fit like a glove and i said and then i pulled strings down the side of it now this is what i want i don't want no big dub- bubbles on the fenders and you all wanted that. to f- you wanted to so the front fenders they would roll and beat those things out with a ball peen hammer and a body hammer and make these big bubbles to be able to have clearance but that was detrimental to drag and all of the other things that you're trying to fight yeah that's the worst thing you could do yeah that would slow the car down so you're taking all of that out everybody else is bringing that to the racetrack thinking they're doing the right thing right so they don't want no tire rubs they got clearance but you're streamlining the side of your car when you look at pictures of this car at daytona at talladega in 1979-1980 you can see how much straighter and flatter the top you know the 12 o'clock on your on your right front fender or your left front fender how much flatter and smoother it is than a lot of the other cars you're competing against but I know going back and forth at lunchtime, I'd go over and check on it, and I'd pull the strings down. And they said, "Not one of one, cut it off." And I and I wore them out working on that race car because yeah. I wanted it one way and not a other way. Yeah. So finally, I got the thing, and I took it to the shop. Then we assembled it, and put it together, and uh, two days later, I get a bill. $10,000 bill for that car. Yeah. I'm still mad at myself for paying it. But anyway, I said, well, that'll get me fired. So we go to Daytona and win a little double race car, and she was fast. And like you say, they was so fast, it was running up on people, and they they wanted to paint the front of it day load and quit scaring everybody. Yeah. But I remember it was a, the blackest black I could come up with, and then that, and the silver on it was a 66 Corvette. And then we put the stripes down the side, of the orange and yellow and, yeah. and red. And that really set it off. Those mobile people took a fit over that car. Why? It doesn't see nothing like it. Like that. <laughs> they liked but it. But anyway, anyway, I'll never forget the car was very fast during practice and all. And Sunday morning before the 500, Dick Beatty was in charge of the garage. And he pays me to the office. I said, what have I done now? Because Bill France, I'd come in of a day, of a morning, and he'd come over to me and he'd say, what are you're stinking up the show. I said, Billy, I'm not doing anything wrong. I could tell every night they had to cover off that race car. That's what I wanted to ask you. You say in a lot of interviews that um, you put the cover on the car a specific way and you could tell the next morning it oh, was yeah. different. Oh, yeah, we'd mark it. So what were you mar- how were you marking it? Well, you- just different ways yeah. you know but you knew nascar was looking at your car oh, yeah and at night when y'all were when y'all leave the garage and garage closed you go back to the hotel you knew nascar was taking a look oh yeah but, but that's okay yeah a funny thing that was probably common back then <laughs> not a big deal well i think it was yeah know. i mean as long as you ain't cheating you got nothing to worry about right right that's it i wasn't doing nothing wrong yeah. but anyway Dick made him come in, and he'd run everybody out of the little garages in. He said, sit down over there. I want to tell you something. 
He said, ain't nobody here wants to run against that race car today. I said, Dick, there is nothing wrong with that race car. It's as legal as they can be. He said, yeah, it's illegal. I wish everybody go through inspection where you can just see how legal it was. No, I don't want them to see, you know, because they're pulling the front ends down, and that's killing the cow pressure. If you put it back up there and then when it comes back on the rail, the cow pressure is up. It's unbelievable how much you could get out. And I remember having 80s square jets in that carburetor, which is pretty unusual. But all eight spark plugs looked the same in that car. Yeah, it, I mean, the, so people were pulling the noses down. Yeah, uh, it just killed them. And I remember watching some of them go through inspection. They'd push on the template and everything to try to get it. You know, it's a two-inch block. I think they had to, you end up clear. Yeah, but then that one, that one template laid right on top of it. So I'm when, fucking, so when, the cow pressure is, you know, you you mentioned the cow pressure. And when the Bud guys were really successful with the Bud car, we won all those races at Daytona and Talladega with with myself and Michael. We we the 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 speed was getting everything into the carburetor and through the intake as good as fast as possible, right? Putting as exactly. much air, putting as much air in there and fuel air in, in there as you can, and that starts in the cow. All right, and so that the shape of the cow and how the cow interacts with the air box and then how the air box allows right. and how how can you make that air convenient as possible to get into that into that carburetor. So we had a single individual that would come to our tests that worked on nothing but cows all winter. He built oh, yeah. cows, cow after cow after cow. And we'd go to Daytona in 2002, 2003 and go through 15 cows during three days of testing. You needed it every day because you were going to try everything you could. You had 15 different cows, and then each of those cows would have three or four different types of guts, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, and that's where you found the cow that was going to lead the best, the cow that was going to run the best in the draft, and then how to take the most of the, the best of those two worlds and merge them together for the best cow you could possibly have. And so that's honestly one of the biggest secrets, I think, that gave us a bunch of success. And you picked up on that uh, way back in 1980, um, or I'm sure before that even. Oh, but yeah, that before was something, that. Yeah, that was something. See, at home on Monday, we were making those, stamping out those uh, air cleaners. Yeah. And they were two different ones of them. And I was in the middle of working on them and, and, and perfecting them. And I had a jump on everybody as far as those those cow pieces yeah and so what was so outside of trying to get the nose down you know if you held it so you're telling me keeping the hood flat is that right yeah you don't want to raise it up as much as you can at the temperature to let you yep and then when you raise it up you know that lets more cow pressure go in okay you know it's a big it's big how much it helps yeah and so just uh you know that the one the other the one thing though this the one thing when I think about the 1980 Daytona 500 is that I, I think about 79. You had the same car. You had the same speed in 79. And they had that rain delay that, that, hurt, yeah. that hurt a lot of guys. Uh, fouled some plugs. Daryl's car had some issues all day long. 
But it, uh, y'all end up breaking 40-some laps into the Daytona 500, and everybody said that the Grey Ghost was, was the strongest car back in 79. I remember Buddy getting out and being so dejected. Oh, yeah. So disappointed. Um, and so when he's out there racing that car during the 1980 Daytona 500, um, how much pressure was on you, or how much, how nervous were you? Talk about being nervous in that 1979 Daytona 500 about that $200 motor staying together. What was the pressure like for you as you're getting toward the end of that Daytona 500 in 1980? Everything's gone right. You've won everything. The car's a, the car is, uh, you know, second to none. There's not even anything close to it in speed, and Baker's out there leading the race. And in command, uh, what were your nerves coming down to the finish? Well, it come down, we needed one can of gas, and I needed to get it full because it t- took like, you know, so many seconds to dump a can of gas, and I knew how long it took, like it took six to seven seconds to dump a can. And I knew Buddy to have zero patience, and he had been told me, he said, I've been trying to win this race for 19 years, <laughs> and I haven't won it yet. And Bobby Allison drafted us. And with Bud Moore Ford. So we come down, and I told him I need to get a can of gas in there, buddy. Wait on me. And so when he come in, Buck, we answered the gas, man. He hooked up immediately. Actually, before the car started, best I remember, I put my arm in the windshield and got a hold of the top of his uniform like I'm going to hold him. Yeah. And hopefully he'll listen and not go. But I got the bike 2004, and he's on. I can hear him rail the engine up, and he's going to dump the clutch on it. Well, he did, and Buck began stayed to it and come flying down by me. And anyway, we go back on the racetrack, and Buck said, "Well, I think I got most of it." And Chris Economic and them, they was trying to interview me, find out what happened, and if we're going to make it. Yeah. So when he come on the racetrack, we had a six second lead on Bobby Allison. And then he stretched it out to six, seven, eight seconds. And I'd say, buddy, you know, you're running away faster than you need to. And he'd say, come on, and he said, I can't hear you. And he just helped that thing wide (laughs) open. So he come down there, and and the caution come out the last lap of the race. And he didn't even pay no attention to that caution. Damn. Stayed throttled up. he come down there and won the race. But it was – it was one of the greatest wins, you know, I ever had rest because of what went in, uh, into it that winter and all I went through. And then we get in Victor Lane, and, and Harry Rainier was standing there beside me, and I had never told him about that bill. Yeah. And one of the guys walked up to me and said, well, you just competed the fastest 500-mile ever, 188-point-whatever it was. Yep. And it said – and you've won the most money, $103,000. I said, no, Harry, you've won 93. You owe 10 fat race car. <laughs> <laughs> I know this was probably not a big deal back then, but you knew in 1980 that the downsized cars were coming. Well, we take that same car to Talladega, and it come down to the end of the race again, and your, your dad was yeah. drafting on us. Yep. And my tire man, he says, you've got to change four. I said, I don't want to change. I mean, we got in a scramble about that. And finally, I give in because I figure if I don't change four and something goes wrong, it's my fault. Yeah. So I called a four-tire stop. Earnhardt, your dad come in and changes two. Well, he's going in turn one, and we're coming out of turn four. Yeah. Long way, 20-some seconds back. And there was only 20-some laps to go. Yeah. And he runs him down. And the crowd gets into it that day. I don't think it's pulling for your dad more than us. They just want to see yeah. a race. 
And he come down then, and I thought Earnhardt was going to wreck him in the dog lane. <laughs> <laughs> he ain't going to let, let – Earnhardt's not going to let yeah. him win this race if he can have it. Yep. So anyway, we ended up winning the race. And, and uh, we went through Victor Lane, and I'll never forget – we come in the garage, and your dad had Oldsmobile just like we yeah. did, and they had them sitting there, so we pulled our car in beside it. And the inspector said, I forget who now, it, was, it wasn't Dick Beatty, somebody else was over yeah. the garage, said, we're going to find out how you're lowering that race car. And I'm like, lowering the race car? I've heard everything. So anyway, I'm looking at Earnhardt's car there, and Harrison, I told him, I said, Ray Hill was in charge. I told Ray, I said, these cars are identical, right? I said, okay. Look at my right front fender. It ain't even burnt the paint off of it. Yeah. Look at that one. It's ain't held. Now who's dropping the car? Yeah. He looked at me and looked at, and he never said a word. He just left. Yeah. I remember um, the year before that, one of the most spectacular crashes in 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 uh, at least in that era, the late seventies. Uh, the Gray Ghost got uh, gets loose through the trioval, leading the race at Talladega. And uh, it was a spectacular wreck sliding down the front straightaway. Yeah, backwards. Yes. Did y'all lose a right rear tire in that deal? Cause no, it was a trick rear end that got put in the car. What? So the, did the locker come apart in it? or? I don't know, but that, I don't know to do with that, but I remember that's what happened to it. Yeah. So a trick rear end broke? <laughs> I don't know if it broke, but it didn't do what it He's was supposed to do. He's a handful. Yeah. Well, I, I, know mean, he, I remember he turned to slap around. And he's looking at all the field yeah. coming right at him. And when he goes off into the into the off the pavement, into the grass, and we and that and the exhaust was shoveled all that dirt from up in packed it into the intake manifold, yeah. I remember. Oh no. <laughs> they destroyed the race car. So you had to rebuild that one. Yep. Um but I wanted to, you know, I mentioned it a second ago. Y'all had to downsize cars in '81. You're going to go to the, you know, the notchback, um, small, you know, Buicks and Pontiacs and all that stuff. Right. So the big giant tanks, the 442s and all that stuff, go away. Right. Um, you know what? What? What was that transition like? Because the I know when the drivers get to Daytona, they were complaining about how the cars handled and all that. There was a big fuss during the clash about the cars being hard to drive and the drivers were worried it was a non-issue once the daytona 500 come around but the that you know we we have these big shifts in our industry such as the next gen car coming around uh this would be comparable um we'd been running these big boats the 79 monte carlos and and big old mercuries and stuff and we're going to go to the smaller cars um for you you know uh that must have been a big uh, challenging off season, trying to figure out you know how to be fast when you went back to Daytona. Well, when we first you know we was running Oldsmobiles, so we ended up getting cheap metal for Oldsmobile. When we go to Daytona to test with Bobby, and he's going around practicing, and Harry Rendier is standing there beside me. I said, "That car won't run a lick." He <laughs> said, "Well, it ain't up to speed." And I said, "They don't ever get up to speed." Listen to it; it's like a flag flapping in the wind yeah it lifted all the noise it's making it's working against itself and it didn't run so i sent a guy outside to get you know a letter on the on what cars was legal for the yep. year and he come back and had a pontiac grand prix pontiac le mans i said what's a le mans so we go to the dealership well we don't have a car but we can show you a picture of it there it was a fastback that's it 
call guys shop, get sheet metal and build that little Pontiac Le Mans. And we did. And then when we showed up, well, we went through Talladega, which is a big mistake. And they called Daytona and told us we'd had that Le Mans. And, and they told us. We'd, you went to Talladega to test? Test, yeah. Yep. And the, the, it was, they called Daytona and told them how much faster it was. It wasn't near as fast as they told it. Right. But when we get down there at Daytona and unload that thing, and and uh, all here comes all these guys get them a big town car and go out and bring Bill France back in there. See, I'm the only one that's got a Pontiac Le Mans down there. Yep. And uh, Bill come over to me, Bill Gasway and and uh, Bill France, and uh, Bill France said, "How'd you come up with this?" I said, "Well, it's a legal race car," and I showed it to you know, the media was all around me, and they had already seen them what was going on too. So anyway, in the bulletin is fine by Bill Gasway, and Bill France looked at that, and he said, "You didn't look at that." I mean, he chewed on him right there in front of everybody. <laughs> really? That you didn't check these cars out before you approved them? Well, anyway, Bill so said, what was their problem? Was the car too small? Well, it was a fastback, and and nobody didn't want to run the against rear that. windshield. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Yep, slow. It was an, it was a good yeah. car. So anyway. They, uh, Bill, Bill France said, well, have you got another car? And I said, this is all I got, Bill. And he said, okay. So we sat there. They were going to, they were going to, he was going to make you get another, if you had another car, he's going to yeah. make you run the other car. Yeah. In, yeah and I told rule him book, I didn't have another. But his rule book said that your car was Legal fine. as it could be. Then, then we, we just outsmarted him. Yeah. But anyway, to, they finally found a car in Georgia. They wasn't one in, in the state of Florida. And brought it down there and made templates out. Well, if we'd had that template that they made for it, and put and build a race car by it, would have been a lot quicker. <laughs> it was all in our favor. Uh-huh. So anyway, we got through inspection, and we they, they we got a couple of laps on the racetrack. That's all we got. So when they so when you brought the Pontiac Le Mans to Daytona in 1981 for the Daytona 500, they had to go find a Pontiac and create templates for it. Oh, yeah, they had, templates. they had to go get a stock car, a stock one off the showroom, and go make templates because they didn't have any. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, well, they finally brought them in there, yeah. and we got through inspection, and we got a couple of laps. It didn't qualify. Well, what was the worst thing done? We sat on the pole, so that irked them. Yep. So, <laughs> and it handled good in traffic. Yeah, it was. It was a good car. Yeah. But so, that, and, and this car would, uh, that, the car would dominate, and then they would start cutting rear spoiler. Spoiler, yeah. Right? They'd take a spoiler away from us every race we go to. As long as, then we finally had to just give up on it. Eventually, you lost enough spoiler where Bobby goes, That's eh, enough. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm got my hands full in the corner yeah. now. Yeah. All right. So, this I've had this question ever since. You go in 1983, so the, the Le Mans is parked. Now, the Le Mans... You know, you had built this car in 81 and brought it to Daytona and had all the success, and they, they start messing with the spoiler. You park your car. Tim Richmond also runs a Le Mans a little bit. Right. And so, and I think one gets sold down the line to J.D. McDuffie. I mean, this, you know, other people get Le Mans. It's not, you're not the only guy that ever had one. But you, uh, in 83, take Kel Yarborough down to Daytona with that fast. Well, the year before in 82, you know, at Talladega with Benny Parsons, you know, we was the first ran one. that one there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we was the first one to ever break 200 mile an with hour. With the Le Mans then? Yeah. So you, so when did you park the Le Mans? With Benny? 
in the middle of well, 82 season? Well, we at the end of that season we yeah. parked it in. That's when we got a Chevrolet, you know. And with Ko, we come with Chevrolets. Yeah, and so you bring that Chevrolet, that that um, Monte Carlo to Daytona, and Kale goes out there and sets a qualifying lap of two hundred plus, but he flips. All right, very very everybody knows about this. Uh, very famous photo, right? And a really crazy moment. Kale's got this got the pole. Uh, but the car is destroyed. There's people in the garage and around you telling you to fix it. And I'm, I've heard this story before where you're, you know, y'all, we, we know now that you go and get a Le Mans out of a, you know, that was a show car. But was the Monte Carlo fixable? Because that thing landed on the roof. I mean, it bit the hoop bar down. I mean, how much work would it have took? To get this thing back on the racetrack. Well, you know, leading up to that, when we flipped that thing, you know, Kel and I had never worked together before. We'd been friends since the Holman Moody days when he was trying to get John Holman to give him a ride. Yep. And we run around together. We'd go to the lake and water ski together, and his kids and my kids. So anyway, we're down there, and like I said, I never worked with him. I'd always been a body. Bobby Allison, Buddy Baker, and Kale, you know, all them guys, not Kale. But anybody run two or three laps, and you knew, always knew what you had. Yes. I wasn't used to somebody sandbagging. Yeah. So 45 flat was 200 mile an hour, and he's out there running. Kale is 45, 70s, and 80s. And I think, what is wrong with this race car? Because the year before, we had first time broke 200 mile an hour, and then we wanted to do it at Daytona for the first time. And uh, so... When in, in passing, you know, it was Saturday afternoon, we qualified on a Sunday. And Kale said, the car's okay. There ain't nothing wrong with it. He said, let me tell you something. He said, I had never been in nothing this fast. He said, it got enough horsepower down the back stretch. He said, it hits them ripples, and then it spans the, spins the tires. But he said, it goes into turn three, and it's like you hold a needle and me trying to thread it. And he's running 45, <laughs> 70s, and 80s. And I think, well, you know, what are you going to do qualifying right. but anyway we get ready to qualify and i put it down at 20 degrees of spoiler you might as well throw it away because it's a notch back car so it had a lift to start with and then go out there and qualify he bends it down some more yeah Adult so the road. first lap yeah and the first lap he run a 44 70 something and they gave me a tape on it and i misplaced it lost it but anyway the second lap he's going down the back stretch and in the wind tunnel, they told us that that car had run 203 with the horsepower I had in the, in the, in the aerodynamics that it was. So he would say, that guy timing at Daniel's round the track, he said, you think that's something? He said, 203 clip now. And then we went into turn three, you know, she actually flew. Yeah. So Dick Bates picked me up on pit road. And we went up there at the car, and it was back on its wheels. And that guy was standing up side and said, he jumped out of him and just wanted to know they break 200 miles an hour. So we're getting to Enfield Care Center. Kel's in there. They've got his top of his uniform down, checking him out. And he looked up at me and he said, he's like a whip pup. He said, well, you done everything right, but one thing, you didn't put the controls in so I could fly it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I come back in the garage, and the first one to get to him is, is Bill France. He come to me and said, well, now, if you'll fix that race car, you can work on it 24 hours a day up until Thursday, and you'll have to start the 125, run a couple laps, and bring it back in, work on it some more. And then, 
you know, here was Harry Rainier's jet sitting out there and Calumet Farm jet sitting out there and Chevrolet had got in touch with me but then and said, anything you need it from Detroit, I'll have it down there in the morning for you. And Kale had me hire three of these guys that, when he was with MC Anderson. And so they come to him and they said, we ain't going to work on that race car. Three hours from now, we're going to be in happy hour. We ain't going to work going on Going to the stuff. bar. Yeah, going to the bar. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, I was really aggravated with it. And Leonard Wood, I'll never forget, he come to him and he said, what else? You're not going to fix that race car. You've been, in, been on the pole four years in a row with different drivers and different cars, and this would be your fifth. And you've got to fix that race. It's actually tears coming out of his eyes. He couldn't believe I wouldn't fix that race car. And the funniest thing, Junior Johnson walked by it, and his friend told me what he said. He said he looked at that car, and he said, anything go that fast ought to turn yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> Junior, what a character he was. Yep. But we didn't fix it, and I've hated that. Was it that, fixable? Well, I don't know how much of the work it would have took, but it, you know, no matter what, we could have fixed yeah, it. Yeah, wow. You know how it is. We yeah. can get you make put your mind to yeah, it. You can yeah. make it work. I would have been. That'd have been but insane. That, but them three boys. I mean, I I've always hated that I let them talk me in and not fixing that race car. The boys that wanted to go to the bar. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, your Pontiac Le Mans that you that you set to the side and uh, it's a show car. It's over at the Hardy's across the street. Uh, y'all bring it into the y'all bring it in the garage, unload it. Uh, gonna make the best of it. Yep, that's all we done. We just qualified at 195. Yeah, you know. so it's down. But a what bit. I was gonna say a minute ago, if we'd have been on the pole by 103, 203, we'd have been on pole by five miles yeah. there. Oh, car only for second. The cars on the pole was 198. Damn. So the 195 mile an hour run was the next laps the Le Mans would make. Yep. Uh, was that okay? Was that doable? Well, it was just put it out there and make a lap. That's, that's what happened. You you, but 195 ain't too bad. If well, that's yeah. the case, if that's the case, if you just like, hey, run, go out there and run and see what it'll do. And so y'all got to work on it and make it a little faster. Yeah, you know, it was amazing. Kale, I mean, he was. A, he he was one of the greatest drivers I ever worked with. Yeah, he didn't know nothing you about a race with a car. A lot of good ones, and he didn't he didn't care nothing about a race car. Yeah. he just let me in it. He, he'd always tell me, he said, if you don't want me to use it, don't give it to me. Yeah, and if and and you know he was amazing to work with. There was one thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, dating back to the Holman Moody's days. So, you know, we you built a motor that. Uh, Mario Andretti won a Daytona 500 with. Yeah, there's a story behind that. What happened well, there? Go I, ahead. Well, I wanted to ask you. Um, so, you know, when you look at your accomplishments uh, and the wins, the number of wins, the statistics, all of that is amazing. But it's the individuals too that that sometimes don't get that are that don't get told in the story, like winning. The Daytona 500 with A.J. Foyt. You won it with A.J. Foyt and Mario. Mario, to this day, says that they held him up on pit road the last stop because they wanted Fred's car to win the race. And that he was out there doing... <laughs> he's out there running a great race, leading and carrying on, and then they had one last pit stop to make, and they held him up on pit road a little bit, and he had to go back out there and chase Fred down and win. Well... To start with, you know, we was down there like three weeks or something. And uh, Mario, 
car was the same as Lorenzen's yep. car. They had both fire lanes. And Mario was going to the home one and said, Lorenzen's got a lot better engine than I got. My engine won't run. And they changed the engines and they didn't do it no better. So anyway, Holman come to me and said, you got to build Mario's engine too. So back to the shop I go, I build the two engines. I'm, and I remember driving the tractor trailer down there through the night and got there the next morning. So I went to Mario and told him his engine number. And then I went and told Lorenzen his engine number because I, you know, always build an engine for Lorenzen. And all he'd all come to me, what's my number? Yeah. So anyway, Mario told me this. Four or five years ago, they inducted him into Southern Motorsports Hall of Fame. And he said, come over here. I'll tell you the rest of your story. <laughs> he said, when I went to get that engine, I gave them the number. They didn't want to give it to me. And they tried every way in the world to give me another engine. But he said, nope, you give me that engine. He said, when we put that engine in that race car, it picked up 400 RPMs. He said, I knew I had them covered yeah. then. But I don't remember holding him on that last stop. Yeah. I know him, the two of them kept going at it all and we all you know Lorenzen had a pretty, real good pit crew and we could get Lorenzen out way before yeah. Mario he's down to make a pit crew right they wasn't good at all what did you think about um you know what we look at that moment in 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 our sport today and go wow well it's pretty badass that Mario Andretti won the Daytona 500 in that moment back then was Mario and his was was he the icon that we seemed as today? Was that such a fascinating, incredible moment that he would win the Daytona 500, or was the fact that maybe AJ had won it made it normalized in a way? Was it a big? Was it pretty crazy and impressive that Mario came and won? Well, I didn't think nothing about it. I knew that he was very capable of doing right. it, and he had a car to do it with. And and uh, he was faster than Lorenzen, but he was driving that car sideways through the corners. He held on to it all day. I don't know. Everybody was waiting for him to wreck it. Thing. Yeah. So anyway, and, and we'd get beat him out of the pits because Lorenzen had a real good pit crew. Yeah. And then we'd then he'd run us down and pass us, and that, that went on. The two of them raced each other all day, and they finally ended up lapping the field. They, the two of them ended up a lap by themselves. Yeah. But then when I go to go down there and – and was talking to him, and they, the boys on Lorenzo pit crew said, "Well, you give him a better engine, you give us. <laughs> you couldn't win for losing." Yeah, I um, I think it's interesting because the, I I I I can understand maybe by put trying to put myself in the moment that Mario winning the Daytona 500 would make sense to your point, the car, the driver, everything coming together, um. But it's one of those things that's actually grown and we're more and more impressed with it over as time has gone on. That's a rare thing because usually things that are incredible, they lose some of that impact over time uh, as we get further removed from, from, from when they happen. But Mario's Daytona 500 win, that story has grown and grown in, in value i think for the industry over the years so um i wanted to ask you, you you there's three things that you say are the two the three most important ingredients to to being fast right that's horsepower arrow and rolling resistance and i think everybody understands horsepower 
everybody attributes you to being an incredible engine builder. Arrow, everybody can understand that. And, and we've talked about it here, making the side sleeker and, and different things you can do to improve the cars aerodynamically. But rolling resistance, you know, talk to me about things that you paid attention to, um, things that you tried to avoid in, in, in improving a car's rolling resistance. Well, you know, the fluids you use, the grease you put in the wheel bearings, you know, there's a lot of things like that. And then the transmission, there's so many things you can do to it. At one time, you know, we'd take a, a one gear set out of it, just yeah. things like that. If you didn't need reverse or, or first. Well, it, you know. I, I wouldn't ever do reverse. Really? Because the guy What'd got in a place out? he couldn't get out. <laughs> he didn't have no reverse. They'd want to do it, the mechanic to it. I said, no, we're not going to risk What'd nobody's What would you take life. out? Do what? What gear did you take out? Well, we sometimes you could take out third gear. Yeah, it depends on the ratios you're able to get a hold of. Yeah, but anything is rolling, you know, rotating mask. You know, if you yeah. down it, and you can you can cut the ring and pinion down. You can do things like that. Make it lighter. You know, and then at one time we got into real light drive shafts, which would become a you know, it was a kind of a dangerous thing to mess with drive shafts, but yeah. we do things like that. There's just so many things that you. What can, about um, pinion angle and things like that? Oh yeah, that was critical. What was important about the pinion angle? So pinion pinion angle to me is very confusing. Like I I, I don't know shit about pinion angle. I don't know why I want it one way or the other. Well, the one thing about it, you can't line up the transmission and the rear end dead because that. Drive shaft's gonna throw itself out. Okay. It won't stay in there. It needs so to you have, gotta have some, angles. It's gotta have something. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you gotta have angles. Okay. So you know that was crit- critical to get the right angle to it. it depends Gosh, on the cars. Common, you think your common sense would tell you that everything in a straight line would be best? Yeah, but it throw itself out. <laughs> I've seen people do that on the dyno. Yeah. Have the drive shaft straight. And it just and not work. Trying out. to tell them you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it end up in the toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> um but there's a lot of things doing that you know the seals you'd use on the wheel bearings i mean they're just small things that yeah. end up you know in time makes a big difference yeah y'all were i mean can you can you is it is it is it is it crazy to you to think back about all of the work that y'all did for speed and and not just building not just the preparation leading up to getting to the racetrack, but man, you go to the racetrack, you had a practice engine, qualifying engine, you had a race engine, you had different oils. To your point, you were you know, run, you qualify with this oil, race with this oil, um, all of that work, just to be able to go out there and know, you know, well, I've I've, I've done everything I could do right to make this car as fast as possible. But golly, I mean, I know NASCAR would eventually come in and change all these rules to sort of eliminate all of that effort and say, hey, man, how about we all just run the same motor from the time we get here to the time we go home? How about, you know, we take out, take away a lot of this un- unnecessary work because you guys were, were uh, it's crazy. You know, I'm, I was, I came into the sport just as that stuff was sort of phasing out, the qualifying motors, practice motors. Uh, the different oils, weights, and everything. Everybody was running for different different applications. Um, I mean, I imagine that that felt normal to you, but when you think back at it now, gosh, it seemed like it was a ton of work. Speed weeks. How many times were you changing motors 
when you were down Daytona? Oh, it's several times this speed week. You know, them drivers are always complaining, you know, that has got a better engine than yeah. this one. And you was talking about Mario. We became friends when I worked on his 24-hour car, you know, with, with those G Mark 3s and 4s, oh, yeah. you know. And he told about him as a person. He was one of the nicest people I ever worked yeah. with. What about changing motors during a race? They kind of stopped that in 79. That was, I told France myself, I said, that's the most ridiculous thing. Do you realize how many people's getting hurt doing this and burning their hands? Yes. And how many seconds it takes to change the engine, and they finally stopped it. Yeah. They got it down to like 12 minutes. Oh, yeah. Well, they they practiced it. Yeah. Junior Johnson had to fig, had it figured out the quickest for anybody. He did. Bud Moore was complaining that the Fords couldn't change them in, in less than 30 minutes because you had to take the <coughs> – the headers had to come off or couldn't come off or something that like you had to pull the car out before you could take the headers off or something like or the motor out before there was something about the way the the fords were built that slowed down the process of changing the engine in 1979 and they they couldn't even compete right but i mean if you blew a motor in 1979 you changed it during the race oh yeah that's crazy that was double crazy yeah so in night so we talk about creativity i understand you were a big proponent, of, you know, against cheating. You didn't want to do anything that would get yourself in trouble. But in 1970, there were a ton of cars that were running nitrous. Everybody had a bottle. Um, even Dad, when he ran that car for uh, uh, when he ran that eight car for Ed Degree in Charlotte, there was a bottle on that car. You don't have to tell us you didn't run it, but like back then. Take us back, take us into the mind of a mechanic or take us into the garage area back then in the sport when, uh, you know, you, you might look around the garage and go, well, hell, half these cars probably got a bottle hooked up. And some of them that we would later find out left the bottles in there. I mean, they, like DK's car that he wrecked at Darlington had a bottle in the roll cage that he didn't even know was there because he <laughs> bought the son of a gun from somebody else and never even thought the bottle yeah. would be there even to hook it up <laughs> he wasn't probably smart enough to even use it but um the fact that bottles nitrogen nitrogen kind of had this little spell in the 70s where it was just like everybody was trying to do it trying to conceal it um that must have been fascinating i guess as a you know as a mechanic and an engine guy back then to have all that going on around you well, you know, I remember that era that that was going on, and I was not going to do that. Because yeah. the next thing is, you know, that is as blatant cheating as you can get. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's just way out in left field. And they've got to get caught doing it. Well, I know, and everybody did. Was it as easy as just hooking a bottle up and, hit, and mashing a button? Surely you had to change <laughs> particulars around the jets and things in the motor so that the motor didn't literally you know didn't run too i don't know what it might do i guess it would probably run it lean wouldn't it well you know you'd think it had mixer i you know i never did bring it in the shop sure i never wanted to mess with it i was afraid if i ever messed with it i'd love it yeah <laughs> and i i wouldn't do it i never yeah. had a hold of it not at one at any one time and i wouldn't do it and nobody, you, i got accused of it but, but yeah, i never what, done it wouldn't you think you'd have to adjust the motor a lot to make it work well, you'd have to yeah you got it because that's going to run the cylinder temperature up and you're going to have to put more fuel to it or something i'm assuming gotcha yeah you know I wow. man i can't imagine um and then 
when you when they put plates when they put plates on the cars, um, Dave Marcus, I put, I think Dave Marcus and his team, no, Dave Marcus's team. The, so there was a year where both AJ and DW got busted for nitrous or something on their on their cars. They sat on the front row at Daytona, seventy seven or eight. All it's, right, um, might have been seventy seven, but uh. The '71 KK Dodge that Marcus was driving with Her- with Hyde, I think, had a ha- had a uh, something in the grill work duct work that was sealing off the radiator, so it was basically like kind of taping up his grill. Right. But it was in the radiator, so um, there was a ton of creativity in the garage. And hell, I don't know, somewhere in here we got. I got a deck lid from Harry Gant's car that was electronic. The spoiler could run up and down. <laughs> oh yeah, they done all that. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I just, I know that you've t- you've shared a lot about how you try to do everything the right way, but certainly in the garage you saw some crazy things going on around you. Oh yeah, um, with guys trying to make things work. <laughs> well, I just spent my time doing it the right way and and gain all I could that way. And once they got caught, they was really behind. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Well, I always wondered about that. I mean, I you know, nitrous, nitrous never made its way back into NASCAR after the late seventies. Um, I remember one time trying to figure out an advantage in my little late model car at Myrtle Beach, and I was on the phone with a guy about nitrous, and Daddy walked into into the office and heard me talking about it, and told me if I ever brought it into his shop, he would never let me drive another lap. Um, <laughs> Good for him. He yeah, he was pretty he was pretty upset with me to even think about doing that, but. Um, I want to tell you, man, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation with you uh, for a long time. Hall of Famer, well-deserved. Um, you've been celebrated. I was studying you over over the last several days and even last night, and, 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 and I know that a lot of people have asked you to come on their show and do their podcast, and uh, that's got to feel great. I hope it does make you feel great that people want to hear you and talk to you. Um, uh in in this time and this this age of the sport uh seven daytona 500 wins three championships uh many many victories as an engine builder uh many victories as a crew chief uh in this sport 123 pole positions um you got to work as i mentioned with some of the most famous drivers in not only nascar but motorsports in general uh so you know when you look back over your career um you know what is your what what are the emotions uh at 87 years old uh you know what what are the what are the feelings well literally all i can say is i gave it all i had i didn't keep nothing in reserve you know and i tried to do it as honest as i could thanks to john holman teaching me that which yeah. i didn't want to cheat anyway but i didn't and that's why you talk about nitrous. I stayed away from that. I didn't want to do that. So, but you know, I tried to do it right, and I thank the Lord for the ability He gave me. Yeah, well, you're uh, you're a hell of a you're a hell of an engine builder and a hell of a mechanic. Uh, a lot of people that we talk to say so many kind of things about you and think the world of you, and 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 you got a lot of fans here in this studio and at Dirty Mo Media, and we're just thankful to have you here today. Thank you, Waddell. Thank you so much for having me, Lily. Thank yes, you, thank you. Waddell Wilson on the Delgin Download.
man, it's a great conversation to 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 be able to talk to Waddell today. I gotta say, well, he told me once we got wrapped up here. Uh, a lot of times, this is interesting. This happens all the time. People get up from this table, and we continue to talk, right? And they'll say things that you wish were 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 said at the table. And Waddell told me he's like when I when he went to work at Holman Moody, they paid him a dollar fifty an hour. And when he when uh, him and his wife were having kids uh, and building their family, um, somebody thought he should get a raise, so they gave him a nickel, nickel an hour raise. Um, pretty incredible to think back how things were, and it was just a different time. But Waddell, you know, has done a lot of things uh, here, here recently. A lot of shows, a lot of podcasts. Hall of Famer. He's well respected. You're gonna hear some of these same stories if and maybe you already have uh if you listen to stapleton's pod or anybody else but we needed to get him in here and celebrate him one of the greatest engine builders the sport's ever known and a super easy guy to talk to and still in amazing shape and mentally and physically at 87 years old i, I hope we're all that fortunate uh to be as sharp as he is um so just just great to talk to him check the box for me personally here um he's been on our list for a long time so hope y'all enjoyed it gotta say thanks again to ally ally has been a great supporter of the dale jr download and dirty mo media here they're always doing it right with ally bringing us this guest segment no matter what you're saving for whether it's race tickets maybe you're wanting to buy a car or it's a new home you're after we're all better with an ally let's get to the white flag All right, it's time for the white flag. Check out our Dirty Air show from yesterday, recapping that incredible race from Atlanta, if you haven't already. Our Tuesday show is always a fun listen. I enjoy coming in here and telling that Tuesday show stories because we get to talk about the race and then all the other things going on in our life. It's completely different from the guest segment uh, that we're going to do on Wednesdays. Of course, um, the new spinoff podcast for the Dale Jr. Download, DJD Reloaded. Um, I had a blast coming in there and, and crashing the show last week. You never know what's going to happen on that show. Um, we always want to hear from the fans as well, so bring the best reactions and opinions to the DJD Reloaded. It's 704-584-9703. Make sure you voice your opinion. Call us up. You'll hear yourself. If you give us a good opinion, you might hear yourself on the DJD Reloaded every Thursday. I'm going to be off next week for spring break, taking the kids to the beach. I'm going to leave you in great hands, though. Guess what? ESPN's Ryan McGee is going to be stepping in for our Tuesday Dirty Air show. Man, I've tried and tried to get a guest host on the Dale Jr. Download. It is finally happening. I have been looking forward to this. And Ryan McGee, are you kidding me? Man, we got lucky there. I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on everything going on in the sport, and uh, hopefully you enjoy that. And then for the Wednesday show, big demand for the business of motorsports. This week's guest for Kelly's business of motorsports is CEO of World Racing Group, Brian Carter. This group runs the World of Outlaws. What does that you know, mean for the World of Outlaws to have high limits coming on to the scene? Can't wait to hear what he has to say. Kelly's super pumped. Especially because Kelly, she's grooming her very own 
World Outlaws Sprint Car Racer. I don't know, high limits, maybe both. Who knows? Wyatt Miller, her son, is he's in that dirt scene. You know, he's in he's he's on the path. He's he's trying to get there. So this is very uh, interesting for Kelly. Can't wait to hear how that show goes. So that should be a lot of fun next week. I'll be tuning in. Maybe I'll call in. I don't know. Maybe I'll call in from my spring break and see what's going on. We'll see y'all. Have a great one. Check out Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram.